0: Hi, I'm Zoe Panina Baker, and this
1: is Miss Mitzvah. I danced with a boy for the first time, and it was super awkward, and I just waited for it to end. He called me a butterface during a spila. Well, these kids are dead, so we're tons of metal in their mouth, and they're grinding in front of like you're a woman now you gotta think about being fat every day
0: welcome to the miss mitzvah podcast episode two with me your host zoe panina baker we're definitely late on releasing this week's episode but we swear it's only because we care we had a plan this week and we threw it out the window As a project produced by women, about women, in the wake of the silence breakers being named Times Person of the Year, the Me Too movement, and the unending stream of nightmarish media we consume every damn day about women out in the world being harassed, abused, and endangered, we felt it was only right to address this conversation as best we could. Before listening any further... Please note that this week we're going to be covering some tough topics. This episode contains lots of language that may not be appropriate for a younger audience and content about sexual harassment, assault, and rape. We also talk about tons of other stuff too, so there's a series of timestamps in the description if you'd like to scrub through and just listen to the lighter stuff, which still isn't super light, but still. That said, You should know that the conversations you're going to hear on this week's episode were extremely difficult to have. As you might imagine, I've had the absolute privilege in the last year or so to interview a ton of women about their bat mitzvah experiences and budding sexuality. So many of the women I've spoken to have shared intensely intimate moments with me, which in turn, I've been able to start sharing with all of you. When my producer, Sophia, and I started talking about this last week, we were angry and frustrated and so bogged down with the emotional labor of discussing this over and over to no end that we didn't know where to go. We felt helpless and angry and wanted more than anything to speak to and confront even the nicest, most well-intentioned men in our lives, calling bullshit on the notion of the nice Jewish boy. We tried to have these conversations a bunch of different ways, over the phone, in full-on interrogation mode, with little context, just our frustration fueling the way, and ultimately, we found that we were alienating our friends and still felt we were only getting half-truths. So we tried different approaches, and then tried, and tried again. We really strive to be sensitive and smart, but this conversation is brand new, And super challenging, and we're still just figuring out how to have it. Though in no way is this perfect, we hope that this episode might act as a model for others trying to speak to their partners, parents, and peers about their experiences with sexual harassment and assault. This week, you'll hear a handful of different voices on the show, including Rebecca Walden, a participant and storyteller with the Miss Mitzvah Project, our producer, Sophia Landman, and two patient young men brave enough to be our guinea pigs for this conversation, Saul Backer and Yari Talmadav. Together, we braved this learning curve, discussed some extremely difficult topics, and started the uphill climb towards better friendships, compassion, and understanding. This is gonna be good, y'all, so listen on. First up, we're sharing a story from Rebecca Walden. Rebecca is an artist from New Jersey, currently living in Brooklyn, attending Pratt Institute. We spoke on an August evening at an outdoor bar in Brooklyn, and she was amazingly open, honest, and vulnerable, given that we'd been set up by a friend, just met, and were basically chatting on the street. In this excerpt from our interview, Rebecca speaks about Cinderella and themes of codependence, dancing with boys, and budding sexuality. The sound quality isn't great. You'll hear buses and noises in the background, but have a listen.
1: Shopping for about Misfit dress was really hard. I mean, I was always very tall. And I was taller than almost every boy in my class. And nothing would fit with flies and length flies at the same time. And just, you know, it was a lot of, like, picking and prodding. And the beginning of, I should be shorter. should be X, Y, Z. And, you know, it... It's kind of scary at that time also because your body's going through all these changes and then you're told that it's going to go through even more. So you're kind of on the edge of that. Being on the edge of a cliff, looking out at a womanhood, being like, okay, so this is happening and it's going to happen either way. Being able to cope with those changes takes practice. I ended up getting, it was like a week before McCarty, and I couldn't find anything, actually. I'd been looking for a very long time and ended up at store number infinity, and I ended up with this ice blue sweetheart neck ball gown with a boned top, a like corset top, and then a sparkly poof at the bottom. And it was cool because when I tried it on, the seamstress didn't actually have to take Mm -hmm. up the hem at all, but it fit perfectly. I also wore my hair curly for the first time to a party. That party, actually, I would always straighten my hair. But I had this really beautiful updo, and the hairstylist would come and oh, you know, you have beautiful curls. That was like one of the first times that a hairstylist also wasn't fighting with my hair. And so I remember looking in the mirror and going, wow, okay, so this is the hair that I have, you know, touched up. But it's like, you know, this, this is actually me. I don't need to change this very inherent part of myself mm-hmm. to, to feel beautiful. For the first time, I realized on a day when I felt really beautiful, I started to notice the beginning of sexualization, and so that kind of put me off a little bit. I had a great time with my friends, but I danced with a boy for the first time, and it was super awkward. And I just waited for it to end, and I just kept thinking about, you know, the time that he called me a butterface during tefillah. I heard him whisper it. He was standing like in the row behind me, and you know, I, I heard it. And like people told me about it later, and I just remember thinking, "Please don't touch me." <laughs> Would it be bad if I just made a scene right now and? just like was like I can't I don't want to dance with you you know walk away but I wanted to be nice and conscientious and you know not make a fuss about it so I just waited for the song to be over that was interesting it was kind of creepy to see the beginning of these fears manifest themselves and looking back now, the ways that I tried to talk myself out of it seem less justified. Now looking back, wait, it's called consent. You don't have to dance with anyone, but you don't want to. Twelve-year-old me was, I'll just wait it out. It'll be fine. Minute and a half. What could go wrong? <laughs> I learned how to blow dry and straighten my hair when I was probably 10 years old. And obviously I wasn't allowed to do it every day, but in middle school, every morning I would wake up and flat iron my hair until it was pinned straight. And I had this long, long, thick curly hair, and it took at least an hour. I would get up at the crack of dawn to straighten my hair until it was pinned straight which would last half the day anyway it it was interesting like the the social hierarchy of this class in middle school was very much reliant on that too I noticed the girls who got the most attention or admiration from you know boys or from other girls were always they either had naturally straight hair or they straightened it and I feel like straightening the hair was a big part of middle school, that, that was like the coming of age thing. You know, it was like, oh, what kind of iron do you use? What kind of hair products do you have? Like, what kind of highlights do you have? It was like very subtle and stuff, but that, that definitely was just such a big thing. It's such an integral part of the culture. I was kind of able to fit in with those girls, but it felt wrong somehow. Every time I hung out with them, I kind of was very conscious of the layers of artifice. A lot of it was just picking on what people would wear, like oh her pants are a little too short. Looks like she's preparing for a flood. Or, you know, oh, she has panty lines. Like, points and giggling. You know, just such petty things. That now it's like, why do you yeah, care? Like you know, no one should be policing other people's bodies, especially when it's just so irrelevant. The littlest things would just seem like these huge deals to these girls. And, I was not the type to do evil things, but it was not beyond me to see evil things happening. And to my own friends, too. Even if I was there for them, I didn't stand up for that against these very judgmental girls. But at that time, I was definitely trying much harder to fit in. Mm-hmm if I were to do it again or, you know, to talk to myself in the second person. I'd just, hey, it seemed a lot scarier than it actually would have been to stand up and do the right thing and say, wait a minute, like, what are you doing? This doesn't make you cooler or prettier or, you know, it just makes you as ugly as you say other people are, but on the inside. There was a cocktail hour upstairs first and then the service and the party both took place in this really beautiful ballroom downstairs which had an atrium outside with glass walls that you could go into and it was in December so it was snowy and it was like a winter wonderland. My color theme was teal and pink and... I had my key code in those colors, and they all said tough guys wear pink on the inside. And all of the tablecloths were also pink with teal ribbons and flowers to match. And all of the tables had centerpieces that were centered around the theme of Cinderella. So, they were all the different characters from the Disney movie, and we had this big cardboard cutout of Pumpkin Coach and like the mice and Fairy the Godmother. They were all cardboard cutouts on the tables. Cinderella as a theme. I hate that story now. It's, that's so against what growing into a woman has taught me. Even though I love the idea of, you know, this magical night where you can transform yourself, that's fleeting, and it still has the idea there's going to be this magical care-all, this one thing that you need, and then everything will be happily ever after. And it's about much more than that. Looking back, all of the stress that led into it... I got really caught up on the monetary aspect of it. My dad had lost his job a few years earlier, so being in that setting with an economic issue that I didn't feel comfortable disclosing to anyone else kind of made me feel like there are these standards that I need to go by, and I need this, that, and the third, and you know, if I don't have them perfect, then people will doubt me and doubt my validity unless I have these things and you know they think that I spent this much money when in reality, you know, I didn't and that doesn't make any sense. I think that it's about the experience, not about the aesthetic possessions that go into it. After the party's over, you're just gonna be left with the memories and that is a lot of pain and stress and Trying to fit these standards, which don't really amount to anything, is kind of the opposite of what a bat mitzvah should be cultivating.
0: As a tween coming of age in the mid-2000s, I spent the spring seasons of my formative middle school years at bar and bat mitzvahs like Rebecca's. Wriggling around in stretchy, ruched, sequin-covered dresses... I held hands with friends in giant circles, shouting the words to and hear in catering halls full of parents and peers. As we got older, girl gangs turned to grind lines, games of Coke and Pepsi lost their cachet, and the kids I grew up with started slinking off into coat rooms to sneak kisses and later spread rumors about copping a feel. Just thinking about these spaces, the shit I saw and experienced and heard makes my skin crawl thinking back on everything from first kisses to first flings and the slew of dudes i've encountered along the way there have been and most likely will still be many moments in which i didn't and won't have the vocabulary not just to get what i want uh, but to feel comfortable with what i'm doing and with whom I'm trying to unlearn toxic behaviors that I've come to know as my norm, but this is an ongoing education. And I know that as a woman, I'm only a fraction of the solution. So how do we approach the men in our lives who've skeeved us out, made us feel unsafe and uncomfortable? Sometimes even more challenging, how do we approach the men who we care deeply about, and no can do better i've harbored a lot of fear lately that i was shutting out people i do respect and care about out of this conversation in turn feeding into their ignorance and making maintaining these relationships super difficult i wanted to talk to my friends but i didn't know where to start So after a handful of really unproductive and hurtful conversations, we tried something new. We shared Rebecca's interview and sent our friends a letter, gave them a little bit of time to reflect, and then called them up to chat. For the next chapter, I'll be handing things over to Sophia.
2: First up, you'll hear an excerpt from an interview with Saul Backer, a 21-year-old musician and student from New Rochelle, New York, currently living in Montreal. We spent the afternoon with Saul this weekend trying to sort this out. Saul is one of my closest friends, so it felt important that I steered this conversation. Over the course of the afternoon, we spoke about slut-shaming, consent, and everything in between, from bar mitzvah age all the way through college. So... What do you think about the word Butterface?
3: I mean, it's... Because
2: that's what stood out to us. Yeah, I mean, universe. I wrote
3: that in, in all caps in my little notebook. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a horrible thing to say about someone. Oh, yeah. Um, right, and it's also, I mean, it speaks to, uh, right, this quality of, like, body as object, not person as person. Yeah. Right? That, like, you want to break a person down into sections or attributes, which that you can then grade and, like, come up with a total and be like, are they good enough for me? Check. What someone's face looks like is really important. Yeah. And it, like, totally devalues that, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. That it, like, it really emphasizes, like, sexualized areas over, like, the part that you talk to. Yeah. Which is really weird. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've heard this term, you know, for years. I've always thought it was fucking strange.
2: Yeah. Um, like, would your friends call girls butterfaces to you? Like, is that a term that you were with? Was that familiar? part of your vocabulary as a kid? Yeah.
3: Um, It wasn't ever really part of my vocabulary. It was definitely, I think, part of... I don't even think, like, my close friends. I mean, it was definitely, it was stuff that I heard. It was in the lexicon of the people that I was around, for sure. Um, I mean, I would hear women described as butterfaces. Um, I I can't really think of an instance of my friend being like, oh, yeah, but she's so... You know, like, there were other fucked up things that we said to each other. Like what? Um, yeah, explore. Uh, hit was, was slang for being ugly. Hit? Hit. Somebody's hit. Like, what does that even mean? Because it looks like they got hit okay. by something.
2: uh uh-huh. Damn, I was
3: sheltered. Um, like a truck, I think is the in, is the is the implication there. And slut shaming, I mean, growing up, slut shaming was absolutely, in retrospect, something that not only happened around me, but I had participated in. Um, I mean, I <laughs> it's like fucking abhorrent looking back on it. I really have these very distinct memories of like hanging out with older friends who had cars, and we'd like drive around and just yell slut at people. And it's just, like, it, it, it's so fucked up. And it's just, like, it was something that was just, like, it was a game. Yeah. We didn't really mean any harm. It's, our our uh, nurse house has, a, it has multiple colleges. So there are, like, lots of college people. And so we just yell slut at every woman who walked by. It's, like, really fucked. And, like, it didn't even, it took me years to realize, like, what am I actually doing? Right? I mean there was a little period of time where this happened. And it did it, years went by, and it was like I didn't get how unbelievably fucked up that was. And like how unbelievably hurtful it would have been to be one of those people. Um and yeah, I mean that's something I struggle with a lot. That just like, what else have I done in my life that's that's really hurt people that I like still don't realize? Because I'm sure there's shit that's out there. It's inevitable that there's shit that's out there. Um, you know, and it's, it's really... It's hard to reflect on yourself in those moments and go like, Wow, that was super not okay. And I just actively participated. I thought it was fun. I thought it was funny. Yeah. You know, and like, how... How much I want to go and just like smack that version of myself in the face repeatedly with a baseball bat... Like, you know, it's, it's really, it's really striking as, as you grow up looking back at the things that you thought were normal. And because
2: like, they were normal. They were
3: normal. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Like, because when we started puberty, like the, the language and the, the progress and the culture around sexuality and gender was so different than it is now. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know. I haven't been in this world for that long. But I think in the past three shit's years, shit's changed
3: a lot. In the last ten years, I think. I yeah. think it's been a bigger, I mean, three years for sure. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, losing just on the top, I mean, I remember I was hooking up with this girl and, like, it was weird. It was like, we ended up dating and shadily were dating. Like, we were friends and we hung out all the time and then we did sexual activities together. Yeah. Um, but like we weren't dating. It yeah. was like very important to us at that time that we weren't dating. God knows why. Okay. Um and I remember like we were hooking up and I said I mentioned something about sex. And then like, you know, an hour later or something, I left and she texted me like, "Are you DTF?" And I was like, "What does that mean?" Uh-huh. She was like, "Are you actually down to fuck?" And I was like, "I didn't know this was on the table." Yes? Yeah. I think is and right I and I, I think there's definitely this quality in in masculinity that like you don't turn down an offer. Like if you have the opportunity to have sex with somebody, you have sex with somebody. Because if you're if you don't like and this has literally happened, you're a pussy. You're such a pussy. Why didn't you have sex with that person? Right? And it's like it is super there in terms of like The ideas of masculinity that I grew up in, like, that was very clear-cut. Any opportunity was an opportunity that you took. So it was like, when she was like, are you down to fuck? I didn't even consider, like, I don't know, we're not in a relationship. I don't know if I'm ready for this. I don't know if I should. I didn't, none of that factored in. I was like, my answer is supposed to be yes. So, yes. Yes, I am. Without even, like, thinking about what it meant or the repercussions or... And I remember, like, after having sex, going, like, holy shit, if things had gone wrong, I, like, she could be pregnant, right, for all I know about what the fuck is going on. And, like, it really hit me that I was like, whoa, this was a big deal. Um, but it, like, totally didn't factor into to my decision, like, at all, up until that point, up until after it happened.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There's like two really like interesting things that stood out to me about that story in that like DTF was the word that she used, which is like what? like so that,
3: That's so such
0: crazy. aggressive language
3: yeah.
2: um, that's like shocking
0: and weird. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and then I don't know. I, to me, like calling somebody a pussy is calling them feminine.
3: You are right. No, um, absolutely.
2: So, like, it's that, it's the idea that, like, if you're not, like, it's, it's just reinforcing the idea that men always want to have sex all the time, and women never want to have sex ever, and that's just the way it is, mm-hmm. unless maybe they let you. Yeah. Because that's, that's the same experience I had, really. I was just like, okay, I guess I have to let this guy do this thing. Right. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, that you're playing into the gendered stereotypes that you think you're supposed to fulfill, in a sense. That like, I didn't, I wasn't even like, I wasn't thinking about like, is this a good idea or a bad idea, or like, am I ready? It was just like, there's an opportunity, I must do it.
2: If this conversation sounds like it was difficult to have, it's because it was. These conversations aren't only difficult to get into, they're difficult to prompt. As listeners, you should know that the first time we tried speaking to Saul, it did not sound like this. If you're up for it, know that this stuff takes time and emotional labor that we often don't want to give. And I can't stress enough that not having the patience to give to these conversations is totally okay. This is a work in progress, and while the progress makes me hopeful, the work doesn't always feel worth it. A lot of these conversations just feel like screaming into the void, and I sometimes ask myself why I still have them. I just have to hope that through trial and error, we can figure out the most effective way to reach someone, especially someone you love and respect and want to continue a relationship with.
0: And then, it was my turn. For this conversation, I chose to speak with my friend Yari. Yari Talmadov is a 26-year-old comedian and social worker from Queens, New York. Though we didn't meet until our late teens, we grew up in each other's periphery, going to similar schools and youth programs and living in nearby neighborhoods throughout our childhood. I called up Yari last week, and here's what he had to say.
4: There were several things that really stood out to me about with your interview. Um, the first one that, like, I felt very viscerally was just hearing the word butterface again, um, because that was a term that I used, and that was a term that my friends used and that lots of people used around me, and obviously looking back, it's a really not, it's a a horrible thing to say about somebody. It's a really... Horrific thing to say about somebody. Um, But when I was 15, 16, something around that time, um, it just felt like, oh, the boys are talking about the girls. And this is how we talk about them. Um, And the first thing the first pang of embarrassment and there were several pangs of embarrassment that I got throughout listening to this interview was just hearing butterface and hearing what it felt like for somebody on the other end to have been referred to in that way. Um, I guess when, like when you're a teenage guy and you're sharing close quarters with teenage guys and you're talking about, like, girls that you think are attractive, um, you start to get into the real minutiae of their physical appearance um, and really kind of... Tur- not seeing them as humans, but turning them into um, a collection of parts. But the, I would hear the term used a lot with, like, a Jewish youth group um, and a Jewish summer camp. I went to a secular high school, but I went to Jewish youth group, um, and I went to Jewish summer camp. Um, And I also heard it at secular high school, too. So it's not just a, a Jewish thing, but something about the way that these Jewish institutions are set up kind of encourages, like, hookup culture and relationships between Jewish boys and Jewish girls a little bit, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. But when you're like a horny teenager, you end up being reinforced by all these other like horny teenagers who will in a collective group, um, end up reducing people to just a sum of their, um, parts that they find to be attractive. Um, And in terms of, like, the thing that I keep coming back to when I think about this is, um, like, the way women were treated as social currency, or I I guess they're not, they weren't women at the time, they were girls, but the way that girls were treated as social currency, um, that, like, who you hooked up with was something that would make you cooler or not cooler. Uh, what base you got to with them was something that made you cooler or not cooler. Um, and like being the, like the gaze of your peers when you would, uh, like engage with, uh, members of the opposite sex was something that you're always aware of. Um, I, got made fun of by my not Jewish friends um, for somebody that I had hooked up with at a Jewish youth group event and that I was really excited by because I thought she was really cute. And I was like showing my friends these pictures of her and they all like really made fun of me a whole lot. And I broke up with her because of that. I'm ashamed to admit it now, but I did because I didn't, it was social currency um, in that way. And I, um. Yeah. Um. It like that. Like these kinds of ways that we see members of the opposite sex is reinforced by these groups um, end up coloring the choices that you make in the future. The language that you use. Um, again, I referred to girls with butterface um, before. A whole bunch of other dehumanizing names would talk about their, like, them and their physical appearance, like, with little regard for whether or not they, like, heard me or not. I, like, wouldn't say it to their face ever. But if I was, like, in a prayer session or something, and I was talking to my friend about it, who I was sitting next to, I didn't care who heard me or who didn't. Um, And that's something that I look back on with a, a lot of embarrassment and regret. Um, so, some of the some of the things that I would maybe talk about or say is I would talk about girls being slutty. I would talk about um, whether or not they had given hand jobs or blow jobs to other people, and whether I could. Um, get them from them. I would talk about, um, if they had big pitch or a nice app, um, uh, I would say butterface. I would say, um, if, if it was somebody that I liked, but I didn't find them particularly attractive, I would just be like, like, yeah, she's cool, but I wouldn't fuck her or, something stupid like that. Um, uh, so that's the type of language that, uh, I would use in those situations. Um, and re- repeating them, uh, right now feels really bad. Um, which I, is I guess is a, a good thing about me right now, but is a bad thing for me back then. Um, and, I feel a lot of shame right now, and if we want to, like, if we want to fix these things, then we have to change, like, the the ideas surrounding them. And you're bringing up consent in the con- in the in the concept of these Jewish institutions, and one thing that is fucking huge, huge for young people especially young Jews at these places and this is what I wrote down earlier is rape jokes um, which um, I'm a comedian for people who are hearing this um, I'm a stand-up comedian and an improviser as um, and um, a lot of the things, that we joke about at Jewish summer camp were things that were very transgressive or taboo, uh, things that we weren't, um, maybe it wasn't like, like that our parents weren't around, so they couldn't catch us joking about them. So we wanted to see how fucked up and how far we could go with these kinds of jokes. I don't Remember any specific like like knock knock jokes or like set up punchline rape jokes or anything but I remember that we would joke about rape on a you know on a nearly day to day basis probably at the in these Jewish spaces at Jewish youth group and in Jewish summer camp so when you joke about something in a way that isn't you know, make it that isn't furthering some sort of cause when it's something that's surrounding rape, um, then you're trivializing it and you're normalizing it. I recently like went through some old Facebook statuses and I saw like, like five rape jokes from the years 2006 to 2010. Um, and that was horrible to look at, or not even just jokes. It was like, um, oh like this exam that i took raped me or something just really trivializing it really saying things that weren't okay surrounding it um and it's because when you're it's well i have i don't have an excuse for my own culpability in it i did it just as much as everybody else so i can't speak on i can't like look at this as somebody who's above all of this, obviously. I participated in it, um, I, and that's true. I participated in it. Um, when, but I guess the environment that fostered the ability for people to say this without understanding it or without consequences is this idea of your, your Jewish summer camp or your Jewish uh, youth group, Or whatever as a place that's away from everything else and you can just say whatever you want and there are really no education or or consequences.
5: Were there ever moments like beyond grinding when you felt like you crossed the line Um, and like how how did you learn like, like, what, what do you think are some important moments that, like, young men should either take note of or, like, spaces they could, they can put themselves in, um, that cultivate, um, like, comfortable, um, like, sexual interactions or, like, pseudo-sexual interactions, which I guess grinding is, um, like, Because it's really it's not just about like admitting you're wrong and being like, oh, like I did this shitty thing. I feel guilty about it. Like more than anything, I'm interested in like figuring out where the solutions are um, and where those like moments are when you can like really when you can grow um, and where those spaces are like as a society that we can continue to cultivate um, and just like be better, like just always be better.
4: Um, in terms of, did I ever feel like I went too far? Yeah, there was, there's one experience that I think about a lot. Um, and, um, uh, I just, I don't feel good about it at all. Um, uh, I had a, I was my sophomore year. And a friend um, had one of his friends from out of town come visit who was a a young woman and we were like flirting and we were making out and eventually um, we like made out in the bathroom or something. And eventually I like, like went to put my hand down her pants and she said no. And then I said, okay. And then after like, like, 10 more minutes of making out, I tried again, and she was like, seriously, no, and then exited the bathroom and was very upset. Um, and I um, I feel now as if I, um, you know, did something truly, like, that I was that I'm truly, deeply, to my core, ashamed of. Um, uh, She she said no, and I respected it for a little bit, and then I tried again. And I feel a lot of shame uh, surrounding that experience Um, as to how we can learn and how we can move forward um, the, um, the, uh, sorry, I, the sharing, uh, the sharing that story, uh, I, I feel like a piece of shit, uh, sharing that story, um, so, uh, just, yeah, um, but, um, I just need, like, one second.
5: Yeah.
4: And I'm going to drink some water and... Um,
5: Hold on. It like sucks to say, um, like just for life, um, just like socially, but, um, that was a super tame story. Um, That was like probably one of the tamest stories I've heard. Um, and and is, is for well, it's, it's, it's the most graphic detail that, that a guy has given me, but it's probably the tamest story I've heard overall. Um, and it's like, it's shitty to say, but it's super likely, um, that that young woman has. Like, like a far worse drama has been inflicted on her, Um, and like that was just a blip. Like that was like, yeah.
4: I, I, I like truly hope that that's not true, but again, I wouldn't be surprised if if it was. But still, I did something that. Very much um, li- crossed the, the, a literal boundary of the word no, um, um, but beyond that, I, I think the more productive way to that I've been trying to at least move move on with this is to try to introduce these conversations into male spaces. Um, a project that I'm setting for myself is to write the the current members of my fraternity a letter, um, about, um, consent and, um, guidelines surrounding, uh, like parties where there are members of the opposite or same sex. Um, and there's like sexual or pseudo sexual stuff going on. Um, and, that's been something that I really want to do to help be productive about it. But I think there it's twofold, um, in terms of finding a solution and one, in does involve asking women for emotional labor, which is not something that isn't, is great. But I do think that, if men and women can get together and talk frankly about um, experiences they've had, what things are good and what things are not good to do. Um, It doesn't even have like a lot of stuff that I think pushes people away from these conversations is the language like the academic language surrounding it, or the loaded political language surrounding it, like um, microaggressions and safe spaces um, and stuff like that, that and triggering. Which I am well versed in all those words. I have no problems using them. But if you say that to like certain men, um, they'll be like, "Oh, um, you're just talking about safe spaces. I don't want to hear it." But if you can like have groups of men and groups of women sit down and talk like people and share experiences like, like people with each other. Um, I think that that's one really good way to, to do this because, I, uh, so much of my retroactive learning about all of this happened when I dated somebody who was a sexual assault surri- uh, survivor, and I, I'm sure that I have dated, I'm sure that almost all of the women that I've dated in one way or another are sexual harassment or sexual assault survivors, um, but she, she was the first one to I even really had the language to talk about it frankly with, and um, when we had honest conversations about... Things like this, um, it really, it really did change the way that I thought about things and and felt about things um, because it was somebody that I loved and it was somebody that I that I cared about and it's shitty to say that it has to be somebody that you love and care about because I don't think that that's necessarily true but that's how it was for me to start thinking about things in in a way that felt real and didn't feel performative at all. Um, and, um, the second thing is for men who do have these conversations with women and who do build up legitimate female friendships. And that's the second part of the men, and women getting together thing is building this is building, um, friendships between men and I noticed also that I'm talking in, um, kind of cis normative language and I don't want to like erase any non-binary or genderqueer any kind of people, um, or, uh, trans, uh, people that might be listening to this as, as well. So I, I don't want them to feel erased. And I'm sorry that I hadn't had mentioned it earlier. Um, but, um, when, when you build up friendships with people that aren't the same gender as you, aren't the same sex as you and, um, try to, um, guide those those conversations to be intimate and to be in the same ways that you were trying to do, Zoe, when you were in high school and get and feel like you have this kind of intimacy and this kind of connection with people. I really think that talking one-on-one to a person like a human being um like really goes goes a long way. Um and I also think that even more important than that it's up for it's up to men when they see other men behaving badly or saying things that aren't cool. Um, And it doesn't even have to be, like, somebody, like, groping somebody. Um, It can be, you know, some of the shit that I said when I was in high school or when I was in uh, middle school or when I was in college. All of those things, like, if somebody that I really respected um, was, like, dude, like, rape jokes aren't funny, then I honestly... I might, I like probably would have stopped or I probably would have stopped twice. I probably would have felt a a guilt any time that I did them instead of getting reinforced. So I guess that's my best guess on a, on a solution is one treating each other with humanity um, and sharing and two, um um holding each other accountable, men especially to each other.
5: Pardon. I think that's really well said.
4: Thank you. I felt like I talked for like like thirty minutes. No, that was like
5: really about. perfect that yeah. That was really, really well said.
4: Definitely. Thank you.
5: I think that you're like Honestly, you're setting an example like I've never like heard or experienced before. Um, among my friends, at least, um, yeah, it's really, it's really, really refreshing to hear. Um, and I have a lot of hope from from hearing you speak about this in a way that I didn't before.
0: Yari is thoughtful, insightful, and sets an example with this conversation that I think is important to acknowledge is not necessarily the norm. Across the board, he said the right things in the right way so poignantly that honestly, I was shocked. It's important to note that this is not the first time he's discussed this stuff. Yari has experience talking about these things, which is what we all need in order to cultivate better understanding and be better. More than anything, this conversation taught me that we can only form the vocabulary to have these conversations if we actually have these conversations.
2: We think it's important at this point to note that just because we spent a lot of time and effort trying to make our male friends feel comfortable having these conversations, not everyone is ready for this, and that's fine too. It's okay to still feel angry and unsafe. We still do, too. As women, we were trained to pay really close attention to how relationships were portrayed in the media, and we used them as models for our own behavior. But it's important to note that for the most part, we were consuming different media.
0: Growing up in the era of Gossip Girl and Grand Theft Auto, date rapes and slut-shaming were the norm. Healthy relationships were hidden from us under innuendo and scheming. And our understanding of relationships, both sexual and platonic, were built on stories of revenge, jealousy, and distrust. Our understanding of our bodies and budding sexuality was often that we had something to protect and hide for as long as humanly possible, that our bodies were dangers to our own livelihood and could be hurt at any time. We were taught to keep our guard up to protect ourselves. And as women, We were taught to treat sex like a gift we should be wary to give away, while young men were taught to take what they could get. One thing's for sure, we were all using language to describe our experience, or lack thereof, that likely we barely understood, using it as social currency to prove just how grown up we could pretend to be. Though adolescence was rough and trauma is real, Change is coming. We're coming of age now for a second time. Into an era in which a seismic shift in the public perception of female sexuality is on the fucking rise. A movement encouraging women to speak to their experiences. A day when assailants finally start to see their days in court. If it doesn't quite feel like we're there yet, we're trying. Slowly but surely, to get there this process along the way is making us stronger smarter and more capable than I think many of us would like to give ourselves credit for many many thanks this week to Rebecca Walden Yari Talnadav and Saul Backer for sharing their stories if you've got a story to share please reach out Projects like this take a village and we really can't do it without all of you. If you're interested in checking out that letter and maybe using it as a model to start these conversations in your home community, it's posted on the blog along with a photo of Rebecca's Tough Guys Wear Pink Kifa. And as always, if you like what you hear and want updates on upcoming episodes, subscribe, follow us on Facebook, and leave us a review. Music and production for this week's episode by Sophia Landman. Audio engineering by Will Owen Bennett. And creative direction by me, ZPB. Miss Mitzvah, the exhibition, is on view through January 20th
2: at the Museum of Jewish Montreal.
0: Until next time.
3: But I I distinctly remember saying things and then having older people or my friends be like do you know what that means and I'm like "Mm
2: -hmm." oh I used fetish as just I like something (laughs) 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 I'd be like I've got a fetish for blueberry muffins
3: (laughs) that is the funniest (laughs) fucking thing